Hello and welcome to World History Encyclopedia's podcast, where we put your questions to archaeologists, historians and curators, our experts on history. I'm Fiona Richards and I'm delighted to be here today talking to Dr. Gary Shaw. Gary studied archaeology and Egyptology at the University of Liverpool and afterwards moved to Egypt to teach at the American University in Cairo. He's lectured in the UK, in Egypt and Canada and has appeared in numerous documentaries on Egypt. Gary is also an accomplished travel writer who's written for magazines such as the Art Newspaper, Apollo, History Today, Current World Archaeology and Timeless Travels. He's also the author of six books and his latest one, Egyptian Mythology, A Traveller's Guide from Aswan to Alexandria, will be out this summer in August, I believe, and that's in the UK and then later in the world in the autumn. Welcome, Gary. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So, Gary, an easy question to start with. Did you always want to be an Egyptologist? Well, yeah, I, I think so. It's, 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 it's a hard one to answer in some ways and in not in others. You see, it's always been there, I suppose. I, I can remember being a child and at primary school, and we were kind of studying ancient Egypt. I mean, the teacher talking to us about ancient Egypt and you know pharaohs and mummification and pyramids and hieroglyphs and all these things. And these memories kind of stick with me. And I mean, that's probably the earliest point I can pinpoint. But the fact it's still there in my head, I think, is important in itself. And, you know, we had to write out hieroglyphs. And I remember we had to mummify a clothes peg, I think it was, and make a little cardboard pyramid to bury it in. And I, I've, got, I've still got some of this stuff from back then sitting around at my parents' house. And the fact that I kept it and that they still have it now must have meant that it meant something to me and it stayed with me. And I mean, even after that, my parents would take me to kind of archaeological sites and historic sites in the UK. I really like going to castles and things like that. And after that, as a teenager, I started just reading books and watching documentaries specifically about ancient Egypt and just building this knowledge. And so you can see it all the way towards studying it at university, it kind of was, was there in my head. And so there was no specific event. You know, it's not like I went to Egypt as a child, or I can remember a specific time in a museum, but it, it's more of a something that I was always interested in. And I, I can't pinpoint why specifically, I just loved reading about it and learning about it. And so when you went to university, did you know that that was what you just wanted to study? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I did archaeology at the beginning. So my undergrad was in archaeology and it was only, but I, I managed to to, to specialise and focus on ancient Egypt because there are many, many ancient Egypt uh, modules on offer at Liverpool. And then after that, I went on and did a specifically Egyptology MA and PhD. So I, I, I kind of knew that at university, although I was doing archaeology generally, at first I really wanted to specialise in Egypt and that was my aim. And so to do as much of that as I possibly could. I mean, before that, uh, I kind of undenied between archaeology and something maybe media related. I was interested in, in documentary making and journalism. And so I had these two ideas. One would be archaeology or one would be media related. And in the end, uh, archaeology won for me because I really just wanted to love this idea of studying this, these ancient cultures and civilizations. And I also thought that maybe at some point I could start writing about them in the future if I wanted to do that. And it's kind of funny that that's how my life worked out. So Fantastic. So does that mean that you're more of an armchair archaeologist rather than an excavator? Did you, have you done many digs? I did at the beginning. So I was involved in working for, for a few different projects at the beginning as, as I was training to be an archaeologist. And shortly after my PhD as well, I was still uh, active then. But I mean, uh, since then, as I started getting more involved in, in writing and moved more towards journalism and writing books for the public, I kind of stopped doing 
archaeological work in the field. I guess more these days I see myself as uh, somebody who presents this information to the public rather than does the actual field work. But yeah, no, I did do um, projects in the beginning in Egypt, a bit of digging in the UK, and uh, I was involved in a survey in in Turkey as well. Uh, I mean, one of my favorite experiences of that was in Kantia, P. Ramesses. So the famous city that was that was the major royal city of Ramesses too in the New Kingdom. So I was working on that, but not in um, these the way that you would normally see in a documentary. You know, you see these archaeologists on TV and in documentaries, and they're always doing something involving excavation or things like this. But my job on that project was drawing pottery, which is incredibly important and very valuable and part of the research process. But it's not the kind of thing you normally show, see highlighted on TV shows and things. But it was really great doing that, just being involved in that project and working on the spot where you know this fabulous, amazing royal city, one of the greatest cities in the world at the time, would have stood. But now there's really nothing above ground to show that it was there. And so yeah, I was kind of handling this pottery and drawing these pottery pieces and uh, kind of wondering, you know, oh, I wonder you know, who held this? Uh, what, were, what were people doing with this particular piece of pottery as they went around their daily lives in P. Ramesses? And, you know, who was the last person to see this and all of that? So it's, it's part of the excitement of dealing with these ancient artifacts and recording and trying to reconstruct the lives of these ancient people using this material. It, it is really fun to do that. And I think because that place was so important generally in ancient Egypt, it was really exciting to be part of that, at least for a brief time. I completely agree with you because I think one of the most fun things about excavating is that you're holding something that's 3,000 years old. And exactly as you say, it's like, who did this belong to? You know, you, you find a sandal and it's like, who wore this sandal? What was their life like? So I'm yeah. completely with you on, on that thing. That brings us to our first question from our WHE readers. And we have quite a lot for you today. So it's about time <laughs> we started and stopped chatting. Aidzaz asks, regarding trade in ancient Egypt, did they use a basic barter system or is there any record of a currency? There's no currency that was used uh, throughout ancient e- Egyptian history. It was It was a barter system that they used. I mean, there were coins that were created, but these were much later on. You find kind of money coinage being brought into use only when you start getting Greek mercenaries, so in the late period, so after 664 BC. And even then, these coins that the Egyptians were producing were just for these mercenaries, these foreign mercenaries. They weren't used generally uh, among the people. Uh, I mean, and even a little later on, I think around 400 BC, you start getting them producing sort of imitation Athenian money to pay these mercenaries too. But again, it didn't spread beyond that. It didn't get started. It didn't get used among the general population. So for most of, uh, pretty much all of ancient Egyptian history before the, the Ptolemaic phase begins, you you do just have the barter system. So and the idea that you know you, you exchange goods, but there was a bit more to it than that. They had this idea of exchanges being equivalent to something in the the debon of copper debon is a weight a measurement of weight and so you might say you've just got 10 fish and you say well okay so these 10 fish i think they're equivalent to the weight of of three debon of copper so if you want to take these off me you also have to give me something that adds up to what would be the equivalent of three debon of copper so that could be a stool or you know a nice piece of pottery or some grain or whatever you have as long as it equals that value we can swap you know so that's how the barter system generally operated so you'll you'll find that things will be expressed in terms of of debon normally but it's still a barter system and I would also like to know how extensive was the trade between Egypt and the Middle East and modern day Arabian Peninsula? It did happen. There, there was trade between ancient Egypt and the Arabian Peninsula throughout Egyptian history. It's just that it's 
there's very little evidence for it generally it's kind of spread out across time and, and locations but when you start looking for it on during our excavations you, you do start finding this type of material so for example excavations recently at mercer goasis this is an egyptian port site that was in operation during the Old Kingdom and the Middle Kingdom, first sending ships along the Red Sea. And excavations there were finding pieces of pottery that were originally from Yemen. And so there's a connection there already in these quite early phases that we can see through pottery. Later on, from the time of Ramesses III, we have uh, his name inscribed in a, at a site in northwest Arabia. I think this was only found in the last 10, 20 years or so. And so that was quite a, a sign that there was direct contact going on there, that these that there was clearly an Egyptian expedition that had traveled into this part of northwest Arabia for, for some reason. We can't say for sure why, but it was clearly done by people who knew what they were doing, that they, they, they carved it quite well. It was not It's not roughly done. It's very nice carving. And so there's connections there. And also, I mean, the Egyptians seem to have probably dealt with middlemen in that region too. So there were various groups living in northern Arabia that would have been middlemen for trade between people in the southern parts of Arabia, you know, people who are trading in like frankincense and uh, spices and myrrh and things like this. And they would have dealt with the Egyptians and as this, these items moved around. And then also later on too, moving beyond that into the Iron Age, we have archaeological excavations in the Arabian Peninsula that, that show up Egyptian objects. Uh, amulets, for example, appear at various places. And these seem to, have, well, we, we don't know for sure, I, I guess, how these got there, but it, I mean, we can guess it was probably merchants, traders, people like this who had been dealing with Egyptian material or going to Egypt, you might say, too. Uh, and then, you know, bringing these back home. And these would have quite a prestige value. They'd be quite unusual. And so they were probably had value and meaning to the individuals who, who brought them back. And so th what, so this is what I mean. That there's, there's bits and pieces of strands of evidence that suggest a bit of direct trade, a bit of indirect trade. But there was connections going on in this kind of trade network that, that would have passed through that region. <laughs> yes, because uh, Fikre wanted to know, did Ethiopia and Egypt have a trade relation? But I think by saying, because the frankincense and myrrh. You got that too, yeah. I mean, they, they, they needed a lot of this type of material. It was used in, in rituals in the temples. So it had, a lot of this would have been used on a daily basis. So they tried to source it in different ways. And certainly further south uh, into Africa as well, the Egyptians would have been uh, trading quite extensively, often through middlemen. But I mean, the most famous location down there is this, the land of Punt, which we have references to at various points in Egyptian history, starting in the Old Kingdom and then passing all the way through afterwards at various points. Um, the Egyptians would send expeditions to this land called Punt, somewhere south of Egypt, to, to get hold of types of African uh, luxury goods that came from s further south than Egypt itself, animal skins or ebony and ivory, and even live animals too, uh, like uh, baboons, for example. They seem to have brought some of them from further south. And so there were expeditions going in that direction too, uh, and one of the great, I, I suppose, mysteries, you could say, is where is Punt specifically? People have spent a lot of time trying to define what was this region and come up with different theories generally. I mean, you often get Eritrea, Somalia mentioned as potential locations. Eastern Ethiopia as well is potentially a location for it too. And I think that's been backed up by some more recent studies as well that were looking at some of the origins of some of the animals. I think the baboons that were brought to Egypt were studied and that was sewing up um, locations, I think, in Eritrea and Eastern Ethiopia as potential origins of these animals that were brought to Egypt. So that shines a spotlight on those locations. And it, I think some, also, some people also argue that maybe 
Western Yemen might have been included in this sphere as well. So there's there's quite a range of, of areas that could be spread out that could include this land of Punt. But most people agree that it's somewhere there in that region of Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia type of area. So the Egyptians had direct contact there, but they could also deal with others as well uh, in more indirect trade. Uh, so they, they, they were part of quite a big network of trade generally. It's, it's, I think this is quite one of these important things to remember when talking about the Egyptians, that although we often have this idea of Egypt kind of being quite isolated because we think of deserts and we think of it, it being kind of so the deserts to the east and west, to the, the Mediterranean to the north, these cataracts in the Nile to the south that were quite difficult to sail upon. In fact, in reality, Egypt was very much connected with the wider world through these different trade routes, that both to the south, to the east, in the Mediterranean world generally, and also even um, to the southwest, heading off into the desert. They uh, also, one of the, I think it was again the last 20 years or so, from Dakla Oasis, they started finding evidence for trade routes heading to the southwest through this desert region using uh, way stations which the Egyptians seem to have supplied for desert people traveling through the desert to come and trade at Dakla Oasis. And so it's a, a very much a hub of trade uh, in Northeast Africa and then spreading goods everywhere else or pass, all goods would pass through it. So it's, uh, it's interesting to think of how well connected Egypt was as a country. Thank you very much. Okay, another question now from Doug, who asks, what is the oldest artifact that you have actually seen? <laughs> yeah, this is a... A really difficult one, in fact, because I'm sure I've seen many, many really, really ancient things <laughs> over the years, covering you know all sorts of vast spans of time. But it's hard to really think in my mind specifically what that would be the oldest thing that I've seen. So I'm going to cheat slightly. And I was trying to think about the oldest thing that I've held, perhaps, from ancient Egypt. So I've been, you know, looking at various points where I've, uh, you know, archaeological excavations or doing bits of work for museums. Where, you know, you've got to touch and handle and hold up close some of these really amazing ancient artifacts. And I was thinking about this and I was thinking that perhaps, I reckon perhaps the, the oldest thing I probably touched from ancient Egypt is a pre-dynastic palette. And so these are objects that you get, uh, as you can hear, see from the name, from the pre-dynastic phase. So the pre-dynastic phase is the time before the unification of the state, before there was a single king of Egypt. So there's time leading up to that. It's about 5,000 to, let's say, 3,100 BC-ish. And it's a really important phase in the development of the Egyptian state. But during this time, from about 3,900 to about 3,100, we find quite typically in graves, these objects that we call pallets. And basically, these are stone objects that the Egyptians carved in the shape of animals sometimes, like a silhouette. So for example, a bird or, or a fish, or even a little boat-shaped ones. And they use them for grinding eye makeup. And so it's really great because not only are these objects so old, you can see the use of the, by the people there because they often have a little kind of indentation, kind of where the stone's been worn away by the person grinding up this, this eye makeup in the center of it. And so you can kind of, it's one of these times when you can kind of get a feel for the people who want to use this. Sometimes they have little holes in them at the top. So it looks like they were hung maybe in homes of these individuals used in their daily life. And then quite important because they were quite little, they're quite beautiful objects, then buried in the, in the graves to be used in the afterlife. And so I, I was uh, researching some of this at Manchester Museum with my wife a while back. This was ages ago now. And so we were doing research into these these objects. And eventually we published a little catalogue of them. And during this process, I think the oldest one of these I, I held would have dated to, ooh, it, it was from about 4,400 to about 4,000 BC. It's what it's one that we call from the, is, call say is from the Badarian phase 
of the pre-dynastic. It's one of the earlier examples of this. It's a typical uh, object of the Bedarian palettes, a uh, kind of rectangular shape, quite plain, but it's you know, 6,000 years old. So it's uh, at least 6,000 years old. So it's, it's really impressive to be able to, to still hold these things after all this time and try to think a bit about how it was used and the people who would have used it. That's incredibly cool. Thank you. Emmanuel has asked two huge questions. His first one is he would like to know all there is to know about the development and reading of hieroglyphs. Can you tell Emmanuel about hieroglyphs in a nutshell, Gary? <laughs> okay. Uh, as you say, this is a, a very big question, but uh, I'll try to explain briefly. So talking about the development, the origins, uh, the earliest hieroglyphs we have evidence for come from about, well, depends on who you talk to, but roughly 3,300 BC-ish. And they're found at Abydos in a tomb called Tomb UJ. And what we find there is these small tags, kind of labels, that were associated with, with goods that were buried in the tomb. And on these labels, you have these very early hieroglyphs. They're, they're not extensive. There's not a lot of writing on them. And because they're so early, it's, it's kind of difficult to also read them and interpret them. It's a very early phase. So people have been trying to understand these. And the, so far, I think the, the major theory is really that these are describing the origins uh, of these goods. W where did they come from? And they're also you know, maybe talking a bit about the contents and things like this. So the earliest evidence we have for hieroglyphs, this early phase of the evolution, is very much connected with keeping notes, administration of, of where items are coming from, where they're moving to. Makes sense, I suppose, that you, if you are increasing production of these items uh, and things are developing in this way, you want to keep an eye on where these things are coming from, where they're going, and it's, your administration develops and you develop a more complex writing to, to, to monitor this. So that's the beginning. And then after that, it starts getting used more and more, obviously. Uh, as we enter the dynastic phase properly, the early dynastic period, we don't have a lot of writing to look at from that phase. But, you know, you, you can see the beginnings of this. People's names are being written down, the titles, things like this on, 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 on monuments. And as time progresses, then, yes, we get it more and more developing. As time passes, we get tomb biographies, for example, people writing about their, their good work for the king in their tombs. We get funerary invocations, prayers, things like this written on coffins and things. And this all develops over time. And in the end, we have literature and huge temple inscriptions and, and all of this. But it begins with this, in this very small administrative way. That's before we get to, you know, these grand uh, inscriptions and things like this. It's, it's quite small at the beginning. Brilliant. Thank you. The second part of Emmanuel's question is also quite a large one. He would like to know about the gods and goddesses of ancient Egypt and their influence on Egyptian philosophy. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's uh, another big topic to cover there. But I mean, yeah, there's a lot to say. The gods and goddesses of ancient Egypt were pretty much a part of everything. We need to think a bit about the Egyptian worldview to put them in context. This idea that there are invisible forces that exist around you at all times, and they're all going about their business, doing their own things. And not just gods and goddesses, but you know, demons and ghosts. And all of these have a role to play. In, in the world around you as, as an ancient Egyptian. And it's just an accepted part of the way the world works. These gods and goddesses could be helpful. They could be dangerous. They have personalities. The gods and goddesses can harm each other generally. They have disputes and arguments. So in some ways, they're quite like people in the way they behave. But the, the forces have a lot more power in the, in the cosmos around us. Like people, they, they don't know everything that's going on. They, they weren't everywhere at once. But they, they had these various manifestations. So although a god, like in its physical true self, 
they might be like in the sky traveling around, you know, going about their business. They could send down their manifestations to appear in different forms that you can maybe interact with. And so the god Shu, let's say him as an example, he's a god of the atmosphere. He might be off doing something in the cosmos, but the wind you feel on your face uh, would be a manifestation of this divine presence. So he's, he's elsewhere, but present at the same time. And it's the same with various other gods. Jeb, the earth god, you know, he, he's, he manifests as the earth that you're standing on. For example, the goddess Nut is the force that holds the sky in place. Because when you look up to the sky, you see this kind of blue expanse. Well, the Egyptians saw this as the endless, infinite water of the noon, or noon. It was a god. Now, you're looking up, you're seeing this endless ocean above you. Well, you're now lucky that they have this force, the goddess Nut, who's holding this back for you. That's her job. In the, in the cosmos. And so the gods have jobs to do, cosmic roles. But if you wanted to interact with them as well, you could maybe make a statue with their name on it, perform, perform certain rituals on that statue, and then the gods could come and manifest in that statue. And you could make offerings to them and ask questions and things like this. And so the, these beings are, are there, they're going about their own business, they're doing their jobs. You can summon them and interact with them. You could ask them for help if you need to, and they can help you or they could ignore you. And this is all part of this general idea of of Mart. The Egyptians believe in this sense of balance in the universe, of correct order, correct correct way of doing things, and the gods have a role to play in all of this. And if you, you know, follow Mart and follow balance, and you're keeping the gods happy in this way. The gods are said to live on Mart. And this was part of the reason behind you know, the, the processes in temples and things like this. You're keeping these gods happy, you know, making sure they take notice of you and, and looking after Egypt. Fantastic. So yeah, so they were a huge part of the Egyptian philosophy then, weren't they? Uh, This this kind of way of looking at the world, uh, I think, is kind of (laughs) fundamental to to trying to understand the ancient Egyptians. If 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 you want to see the world through their eyes, you have to kind of step out of your own understanding of our modern scientific view and understand that this is a very active world where everything has a sort of divine power behind it. You can interact with that in different ways, but being aware of the fact that there's ghosts and demons and gods everywhere around you and playing a role in your life is very much a part of seeing the world from the ancient Egyptian point of view. Fantastic. Thank you. And we have a question now about the Hyksos, who I must admit are my favourites from the second intermediate period in Egypt. And our question asks, were they originally immigrants or conquerors from the Levant? Yes. So it's it's a difficult one because our, our knowledge of the, the Hyksos is constantly evolving. Uh, I think it's safe to say these days that the Hyksos were not conquerors, at least the way we kind of reconstruct what was going on at the time. So it's I think it's easier to explain by taking you through the development of, of who the Hyksos are and their role in Egypt. And for that, we have to start in the 12th dynasty, the late Middle Kingdom. Now, in this phase, the Egyptians are traveling around a lot. They're, they're, they're taking lots of prisoners of war, particularly in the Levant. And these prisoners are, set, are settled in northeastern Egypt, in the Delta, the Northeast Delta. And so you have quite a large population over time of people of Levantine origin who are slowly becoming Egyptianized and, and, and over generations are also taking uh, higher roles in society. So although they might have been brought there initially as prisoners of war, over time their families uh, take on different roles and actually some move up to quite high positions even in, in, in Egyptian society. So that's the kind of background setting there for this. Then Egypt starts breaking apart in the 
second intermediate period. We get this loss of royal centralized power and Egypt starts fragmenting. And one of the regions that fragments is the Northeast Delta, centered on a, a, a town called Tel al-Dava, also sometimes referred to as Avaris. And so this is the area with a large foreign population, uh, Egyptianized foreign population, people who have been there for generations, but they still have older traditions as well from the places of origin. And so the, the origins of the Hyksos can be seen here, really. So it's not an invasion. Uh, there's no conquering going on. And there's no real evidence. I suppose it's even violent at this stage. It's just that the country's fragmented. And there's a lot of people in that area of, of Levantine origin who start taking on roles of, of power in this fragmented, fragmented situation. So that's the way it seems to begin, as far as we can reconstruct. And then something seems to have happened. That, that changed the situation. It's possible that there was a plague or an epidemic of some kind that decimated the population in that region. And so this caused a bit of a change. And when this happens, you get a new influx of people, perhaps connected with these individuals of Levantine origin, who then kind of takes up the power fills in that space. And so you kind of have a new groups moving in. And I guess this is the, the Hyksos, really, this Hyksos story, these people from foreign lands who would come in. Uh, but even so, even then, it's not really a conquering kind of invasion like force. It's more, it seems, that uh, a, a new group had moved in who were less Egyptianized than the people who had been dying during this supposed possible uh, epidemic. And so again, th there's no violence here. And But at the, at the same time, these are increasing their power. They're, these groups... Of, of, of foreign origin uh, increase their influence over the delta and slowly expand. And eventually the Egyptians do wage a war to try and remove them, and they do succeed in kicking them out. But this all seems to have become simplified over time. You know, so the later Egyptians just simply refer to this idea of, of a conquering foreign force, these Hyksos who have come in. And this becomes part of, I think, the, the, the story afterwards, you know, this idea of, of, of enemies that took over part of the country and the idea of keeping the borders safe and protecting Egypt from these outside influences. So the more we discover about this phase, the more complex it becomes. It's not, it's not a simple case of, of, of what, what were the two options originally conquering or, or, or a sort of simple... Uh, or, 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 more peaceful. It's, it's, it's more complex than this. Because there's a lovely story, isn't there, Gary, as I remember about the, is it the Egyptian king who was complaining to the Hyksos king about the noise his hippos were making, or was it the other way around? Yes, you're referring here to, I mean, second Enrei Tao, he's the 17th dynasty king, and he seems to be the king who really uh, began the, the fight back uh, against the Hyksos. I, I, it's, it's the Hyksos king Apophis who is complaining about the, um, the, the the Theban hippopotami making too much noise. And yeah, the story breaks and we don't know what happens. Uh, but second Henry is, is the king who we find that he died violently. Now he's, his head is full of axe wounds. It seems kind of clear that he, he must have died uh, in some sort of situation involving the Hyksos. There were different theories about this. You know, did he die fighting in battle? Did he Was he assassinated in the palace? And I presented my own theory later on, which suggested that he was ceremonially executed following the loss of a battle, that he was on the battlefield, that they lost the battle, and that he was probably ceremonially executed in front of the, the Hyksos troops afterwards. But yeah, this is all in this phase. This, this is the beginning of the, the fight back against the Hyksos. And you've got Second Enre, then Camose, and then finally Achmose, the first, who is the king that kicks out the Hyksos and is the first king of the new kingdom. Because it makes more sense, doesn't it, actually, just um, going back to what you were saying before, that 
for Egyptian PR, it, it, it sounds better that these terrible people came, you know, over the border and took us by surprise rather than, you know, they were already living here and, you know, we had a bit of an argument, a bit of a civil war, really. Yeah. I mean, it, it's an attempt to, to kind of, I, I guess, <laughs> simplify it to its its barest elements, I suppose. It, it's it's a bit more dramatic. Yeah. I mean, as I said earlier, there there is a sense of a, a new arrival of of less Egyptianized groups. And I guess from a Theban Egyptian point of view, they might have regarded that as an invasion, but it is pushing it slightly. I think based on our current understanding of the situation, it's it's more that they were you know, taking up positions of power in the Northeast, that in a Northeastern area of Egypt that was already not controlled by the Thebans at this point in their history. So I'd say that they were, yeah, creating a bit of a story here that uh, presents this very simplistic idea of, you know, us versus them. It's, this fits the Egyptian idea of Egypt as the place of Mart, and control and order and people outside of it being you know, forces of disorder, the idea of chaos. And so this constant battle between order and chaos is nicely encapsulated in this simple way of presenting the Hyksos episode of, you know, the Hyksos were this force of chaos and the Egyptian king, as a force of order, removed them. Did I did I read recently, or am I just making this up, that there used to be a lot about the Hyksos introducing the chariot to Egypt? It's... And then I thought I read recently that that's all been debunked now. No, no, it's 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 hard to really say, I suppose, about which point this specifically was brought in. I mean, the the Hyksos do seem to have had a better weaponry, and they would have had access to chariots. The the question generally is more so: Did the Egyptians use them at this time? That's the bigger debate, I, I think. The because the Egyptians were really cut off from the sort of technology you would need to make a chariot at this time. And you only start seeing them really being used by the Egyptians later on, like in the 18th dynasty properly, after the Hyksos have been uh, removed. And you think about this, uh, and it makes more sense that the Egyptians weren't using them, because there, there was sometimes this discussion that maybe the Egyptians were using chariots and the Hyksos were using chariots. And there was the, the, the as part of the battles that were going on uh, during the, the phase of combat between the two groups. But really, it would have been really difficult for the Egyptians to get hold of the materials needed and the technology and the knowledge needed to, to build chariots at that time. It's only later on that they probably would have had this type of access. And so it's possible that the Hyksos might have been using them, but not the Egyptians themselves at this time, I'd say. They wouldn't have been able to do that yet, but certainly a little later on. Uh, and the 18th dynasty begins, you do start having them uh, introducing chariot technology and also improving the technology of other weaponry as well. And this would have involved, you know, access to, to, to trade routes again and things like this, where you can build, 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 bring in these different materials to, to, to make this new technology. Because it, it, it does make sense that a new population will bring new ideas with them. But we, we probably shouldn't go on about the Hyksos much as I'd like to, because we have another question for you from Brennan. And he would like to know, did Egyptian priests and nobility view written language as largely their domain or were commoners also encouraged to read and write? It's hard to know specifically, I suppose, what the priests and nobility were, were thinking generally about this. But I would say no. I, I think that they didn't see it just as the domain. I don't think there was that type of official barrier, let's put it that way, to, to, to learning in that way. I do think that it's technically feasible that anybody could have learned to read and write. Literacy wasn't just cut off. There was no official idea that reading and writing is only for a certain group in society at the top. But I think there are practical barriers that existed that, that was the main problem that people would have faced. Because 
I mean, you had to learn this skill from either a family member in the sense of being an apprentice or having access to one of the scribal schools. And I guess your wealth level would have been a barrier generally to, 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 to having access to either of these things, because it generally in ancient Egypt, you learnt your skills in life as an apprentice in your family group. And so if you are, let's say, from a, an ordinary farming family, you're not going to have a family member who can read and write to the level of quality that you would need to join the administration as a scribe. So you can't learn from that individual. And let's say you happen to have the chance to go to a scribal school. Well, that would mean that your family would have to support you during that. And they might not have the resources to, to support you in that way, because normally children are, are, are working. You know, they, from a young age, they would start following the footsteps of their parents and helping out in the jobs they were doing. And so you'd be learning the job of being a farmer. And if you're not doing that, it's going to be difficult. You, you, you're not, you know, adding to the family group's resources and you're kind of necessary and needed. So the, there's a bit of a barrier there just from the practical reality of that. I mean, it's possible that you could have, if you're lucky, that your family might have a relative who maybe had achieved the ability to, to read and write. And so maybe you could send them to that individual, in which case they will learn to read and write. And that's great. So you see what I mean? There's no real barrier there necessarily. It's not like the elite are saying you, can, you can't learn, um, only we can. It's more that there are other problems in the way. And of course, on top of that, there's the issues surrounding I mean, what, the meaning of what is literacy? What, what do we mean by this? I mean, it's, it's a spectrum. It's not on or off. Uh, and so there's a good chance that most people would have some element of literacy. You know, you might be able to read it, read some symbols if you go to a tomb, let's say. The inscriptions you find in tomb chapels in ancient Egypt are quite repetitive. The same prayers, the same uh, offering formulae to the gods, and it wouldn't take too much exposure to be able to read some of this with a bit of you know guidance and so those people many people could probably learn a few symbols or a bit of writing whatever was necessary to them in their lives but of course that wouldn't be good enough to become a, a formal member of the administration in, in, as a scribe so it's worth remembering that too that the, these things that there's a whole spectrum here of possibilities for what someone could read and uh, read and write i mean so yeah as i say reading possible maybe not so much writing and access to the knowledge required is going to be a bit of a barrier but if you could get over overcome those barriers, then it's possible, I'd say. It's nice to think that it wasn't just the domain of, you know, the upper classes. So if you had a bright young thing that they could maybe, they could maybe yeah. learn as well. But as you say, it's more a thing of lifestyle because when are they going to use it? Okay, moving on. Uh, this is quite a big one for you as well. Big question. We've been asked, a lot has been written over the years about Akhenaten and Aten. How different was the Amarna religion from the traditional Egyptian religion? Right, yeah. I mean, Akhenaten, I think he's one of these uh, individuals from ancient Egyptian history that most people have heard of, and he's become one of these individuals that has kind of captured the imagination, I think, of the of people generally. Even if people know very little about ancient Egypt, most people have heard of Akhenaten, or perhaps his, his reforms and changes he made to, to Egyptian religion and, and life. The general idea is that you know, you get a lot of people describing Akhenaten as a, as a person who created a revolution, who, who completely changed everything, who tried to reform society in a big way. And it's true that there were changes that were going on. I mean, the, the big thing being that he focused the religion on the Aten, the, the sun disk, and favored that god over other gods and, in fact, almost tried his best to ignore all the other gods completely in this new form of worship. Certain gods have their names removed from inscriptions. So the god Amun, in particular, his name was scratched out of walls and documents wherever, wherever it could be found. He, he made a new city, Tel uh, Al-Amana, uh, in a in a new location in the Middle Egypt. And 
built temples to the art in there. So there, there were changes going on. But I think the more we learn about Akhenaten and his his phase of rule, it's also worth remembering that some things were more, I guess, adaptations, changes to tradition rather than full replacement. And I, I think it's only reasonably in the last, you know, let's say 20 years or so that this is really being emphasized because of new studies that have been looking at things from a different angle. So yes, the, the God's names were attacked, but then not as completely as you would imagine. Uh, you can give the example of, uh, of Thoth, a very important God. His major religious center was next door to Akhenaten's new city. Thoth is ma- Thoth's major temple was at Hermopolis nearby. And his name hasn't been scratched out all over the place, though. He survived quite nicely, in fact. And it's the same for certain other gods, too. So this wasn't a, a complete attack on all the gods' names. Amun definitely is attacked, and, and his, his his family of gods. And I guess you can see from Akhenaten's perspective that if he's promoting the idea of a god of light above everybody else, then this god of hiddenness, Amun, would be the opposite of all of that. And so that's probably why Amun specifically was receiving so much of his attention. But other gods, it's more a case simply of them being ignored, it would almost seem like, more so than them being destroyed. Other things continue too, and it's worth emphasizing, like, like let's say, preservation of the dead, building tombs for the dead, the use of canopic jars, which suggests the idea of, you know, preserving and looking after the organs in the traditional manner. Uh, there's still references in the Amana phase to the afterlife realm, which they refer to as a, the Duat is, is its name. So that was still active. I mean, ordinary people too seem to have been uh, allowed to kind of continue with their traditional household religions as well. Recent analyses, uh, studies at Amana have emphasized that you, you still have amulets of traditional gods being used at the site. And there's a lot of this going on, and there's even sh- uh, shrines that have traditional gods in too. So this idea of Akhenaten banning the other religions or the other gods doesn't seem to really be true. Um, so it's more nuanced than this, what was going on there. I mean, you, you could take it further. Yes, he, he did. Akhenaten did change art. He did bring in this new style of presenting himself. But even within that, the king is still presented in a traditional way using the traditional iconography of a pharaoh. So it's not like Akhenaten immediately went off and designed himself some, you know, fancy new royal clothes that he would be shown in. He's still using the traditional crowns and so forth. But he could have done that if he was completely changing everything. So uh, although I think you'll find in older books, you know, this is all described in very dramatic terms, it's worth remembering now that we should kind of pull back a little bit and look at a more nuanced version of what was going on in Armana and Armana religion to consider just as much what didn't change as much as what or did. Okay, thanks. Because I was going to say, but why Why did he do this? You, you've had thousands of years of worshipping all these different Egyptian gods. You have a reason for them all. And then suddenly he just decides that he wants to focus on one. Where, where do you think that came from? Well, over the course of the 18th dynasty, of which Akhenaten is a part, we find that there is an increasing focus on the sun cult as time goes by. And this, this builds over the course of this phase and its importance. I think you can combine that with the idea of the kings increasingly growing in power as well. So that at the beginning of the 18th dynasty, you have a, a sort of a weaker kingship, in, at least in my opinion. You know, people who are under the influence or having to appease and please important elite noble families. But as the 18th dynasty progresses, the kings get more and more independent power, I'd say. The more ability to do what they want. And I think Akhenaten is the kind of person who 
reaches the culmination of this, that the king is now in a position to do really what he wants to do. He's very influential, very powerful. The, the importance and growing trend of the rise of the sun cult and the importance and primacy of the sun over every other god. And I think he just pushes it to the limit, really. And he's building on his father and his grandfather, where you already start seeing the growing importance of the art. So it's not, it doesn't just come from nowhere. I mean, I know many people tend to argue that this was a reaction against the priests of the moon and their growing power and things like this. And I, I don't personally uh, agree too much with that. I think that the kings had more than enough power at the point of Akhenaten to have simply stripped them of their assets and and things like this. I mean, after all, the the kings could place royal family members into high positions in the the priesthoods. You you do find princes taking up important positions and things like this. So it wouldn't have been that difficult for the kings to find another way to limit the power of these priesthoods because it was really kind of all belonging to the king anyway. These people worked for the king. So I, I kind of try to see it from a different angle. I think it's more to do with the personal authority and influence and the growing rise of the sun cult that I think is the best explanations that academics and researchers have, have put together for him. And now, and now that doesn't take it far enough. Yes, why the Aten, why specifically that and, and things like this, I can't really say. But um, I think uh, we're heading in the right direction towards understanding it at least, and we just need to start building more evidence. Because you also mentioned that he had introduced a new art form. Mm. And I think you're referring to how he was portrayed, which is very different to the normal images that we see of gods, you know, with the very elongated face. Mm. But I think some people you say was that there was actually something physically wrong with him rather than it being a new art form. Which which one do you go for? There's no evidence, I'd say, that he had any sort of physical uh, d- differences, let's say. You know, the, the, I, it, it is seemingly purely an artistic choice. I mean, they, they have um, the, the, this skeleton that is potentially Akhenaten. Um, there's lots of studies on that that suggest it could be. And if that is the case, then the, there is nothing wrong with him physically, if that is the correct body, well, uh, remains, let's say, skeleton, because there's not much left. So, so that's the case, there's nothing there. But I mean, it, the art style does seem to more reflect, again, certain, certain traditional elements. So there, you know, there, there are gods that are connected with the kind of fertility of the Nile and, and things like this, which are similarly shown with the, that type of kind of full belly and things like this, that suggests that, you know, maybe they're trying to evoke elements of that type of god as well in all of this. So it, it's more a choice. It, it, he's doing this for artistic, symbolic reasons, not not because it reflects how he actually looked. Thank you very much. Okay, we have another question now from Alexi from St. Petersburg, and he would like to know what are the latest interpretations of the Hebsed Festival? The Hebsed, for people who might not be aware, who are listening, is an important royal festival that we have evidence for pretty much throughout Egyptian history. I mean, the earliest examples of the Sed festival or Heb Sed, we find it in the first dynasty. And so it probably goes back even earlier than that into the kind of pre-dynastic phase. It's a pretty much a, a key royal festival event. There's quite a bit of evidence for this that's been spread out across time with a few major sources, particularly from the time of Amenhotep III in the 18th dynasty. And the general aim behind these these ceremonies, this the said festival, is it's a type of rejuvenation of the king and improving his right to rule. And when you put it all together, I mean, there's no single source that kind of explains all the rituals, what was going on and the processes, but we can take it, the evidence from different phases. And we can say that after 30 years of rule, the king was expected to kind of go through this kind of process of 
proving his abilities still as, as a ruler, rejuvenating himself, proving his strength and his right to rule still uh, in this very ancient ceremony. Once he'd had it after 30 years, he was generally, it seems, expected to have it every three years after that. So it was renewed every three years beyond. Now, as far as what happened during it goes, it seems that it was a, a pretty major event. So there's no specific location where it would happen. It looks like the kings could kind of choose where they might want it to be. So Amenhotep III has, had his in Thebes on the West Bank at a place called Malkata, which was very close to his Motri temple, and just below the hills where the Valley of the Kings is. And he built a whole kind of village there, uh, a new palace, little temples, uh, and, f and for places for his staff to live during the, ha uh, during the time he had this festival. And from evidence like that, and his courtiers talk about it in their tombs, it seems that the gods were, the, god, the statues of the gods were brought from all over the country and set up in little pavilions uh, that, that, that differed depending if they were gods from the north or gods from the south. The king would have to go to each one of these gods and make offerings to them. So he's you know, presenting himself and presenting offerings before each of the major gods of the country as part of this process. There seems to be a part of the ceremony in which he had to run around between sort of markers that reflected symbolically the boundaries of Egypt. So he's symbolically showing he has the strength to, to, to still to control and look after Egypt and protect its borders by running around this, 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 this uh, route. There was some sort of ritual combat going on. There was uh, the raising of a a jed pillar, which is a hieroglyphic symbol that represents stability. So he's, there's the raising of this symbol. There's ideas of shooting arrows as well to the north and south, east and west, which I guess is symbolic of control, again, of these different areas of Egypt. And so you, you kind of get this idea then that there's, there's, there's tests of, of strength going on there and symbolic shows of control, uh, showing yourself as present before the gods and as the person who can deal with the gods. Being, being a person who was an intermediary between the people and the gods of Egypt was a prime role of a pharaoh. So he's showing his ability to do that still. And I guess in turn, the gods are showing that they still respect him as a king and his right to rule because uh, you know he, he carries on and, and the, the, the rituals are successful. So it's quite important. And although, oh, actually, I, I, should, I guess I should also mention that if you go to the step pyramid of Djoser at Saqqara, you can kind of see this in stone rebuilt. This this was a a full said festival court is built in front of the step pyramid, and you can see the the boundary markers that the king was expected to run around, and also the pavilions that were set up for the gods is there too in stone. And although it doesn't seem this happened in real life at that location for Joseph, this is a sort of eternal hebsed, eternal said festival in stone that was built for the kings to use in the afterlife. So spiritually, it's, it's worth remembering, I guess, if you visit Saqqara, that, you know, you, you look out for the spirit of Joseph running laps around you as you walk around this, this said festival court. He's, he's doing this eternally, proving his right to rule while tourists walk around taking pictures. So it's, 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 it's an important thing. But I also consider, you know, you also have to wonder how, how much this reflects reality, particularly with some of the older kings. You know, kings who had ruled a very, very long time. And can you really expect someone like Ramesses II, who was quite old by the time at the end of his life, running laps around a, a boiling hot courtyard? <laughs> is, is, is he going to be, you know, firing arrows at the best of his strength without, you know, showing weakness? So, it's, we, of course, we have no information. We don't, no, there's no recording saying, and the king didn't do a very good job that year. So it's it's a case of thinking, okay, well, there's a reality here. Maybe a more of it's more symbolic, perhaps, than any more as time goes by. It's a great vision, isn't it? That these very elderly pharaohs are there trying to run around <laughs> the, um, the perimeters for their said festival going, no, I'm still fine. I can still. 
still, you know, you can, I can still shoot arrows and run around things. And, yeah, they're not. They're really decrepit. Was there a difference between the religion of the elite and that of everyone else in Egyptian society? To the ancient Egyptians, the world was filled with what we would regard now as, I guess, supernatural forces. And these could be divinities, gods, goddesses, the king who had his own special position in society as, a, as an intermediary between the gods and the people. Then you've got demons and ghosts. And this is all around you at all the time. And who you needed to interact with kind of differed depending on your, I guess, needs on your role in, in that society. And so it, sometimes it looks like there's a difference, I suppose, between what the elite were doing and what the ordinary people are doing. But it's more a case of the focus, I suppose you could say, because it's all within the same system of worldview. So let me let me break that down a bit. If you're thinking of the elite, you're probably thinking of grand, grand temples, the activities of kings, the activities of the priests. The fact that these temples were actually quite exclusive institutions that you know we think of people today and religion and it's a very much a communal experience people people go to the temple they they go to the mosque they go to the church they go to wherever place they can join other people with a similar religion and worship together in ancient egypt the temples generally you weren't allowed in you know you might be able to go into the first courtyard on special occasions but generally this was the exclusive domain of priests and even among the priests only certain levels of priests could go into the deepest parts of the temple and be near the gold statue. And this is reflective of the idea that these temples are actually a bit more like, you know, palaces. These are these are elite dwellings, uh, the, the gods' earthly palace on, on, on earth, reconstructing in many ways the kind of environment the god likes. So there's parts of the temple that evoke the creation and the shrine of the god is kind of symbolic of the sky where the gods tend to spend most of their time. The statue is treated very more like a king, you know, brought brought special food uh, that was made that they, that they can, you know, take the essence and energy from, clothed in the finest clothing and, you know, given the finest incense and things like this. And so the, the, the priests are divine servants coming and serving this, this god. And this is all part of the system of keeping these gods happy and making sure that they do what's best for Egypt and look after the Egyptians. And so this is more of a, a technical process of a servant to a master, in a way, a servant to a member of the elite a servant to a king. You are not doing this in the sense of, of worship, although prayers and hymns are going on, but it doesn't really need to involve people from the outside. Uh, it's kind of like you, you're the same way that a person in society generally wouldn't just walk into the palace and ask the king what he was doing. You wouldn't just be able to walk into the God's sanctuary and just say, hey, Amun, what you doing? You didn't need to, and there was no real need for you to do that because this was being done by experts. You know, keeping the gods happy was a, a, almost like a, an engineering technical process. I'm trying to think of good examples of something similar, but I guess it's a bit like a power station or something like this, where you've got people who are specialists, people with specialized knowledges doing technical jobs that are there to keep the cosmos running, in the sense that the temples keep the cosmos running, and in the sense that a power station keeps your society's energy moving. And you shut this down and everything falls apart. And in the same way, then, if you look at your general daily life, the ordinary Egyptians don't need to be too concerned with what's going on in the temple, in that sense, because they know that the these experts, the king and high priests are dealing with that side of things. But in your daily life, you're more influenced by other aspects of this divine world that's around you. You might not need to bother a moon with your problems or Ra because or Ptah, these great cosmic gods. But there are gods that would affect your um, daily life. Let's say Redenutet, who has an influence over the Ha 
harvest or gods like Tawaret or, or Bess who are connected with uh, childbirth and, and children and keeping people healthy. You might want to get rid of spirits so, and demons and ghosts. If you want to do that, you might have to call an expert, a, a lector priest, someone who's specialized in, in the right divine writings who, to, who can get rid of them. You might pray to certain gods and the gods might listen to you and the gods might not listen to you because these divine forces can uh, uh, do what they want to in, in the world around you. But these are the gods that you would be interacting with more so on a daily basis. I guess the continue new, maybe this is a bad idea, but to continue my comparison to power stations, um, <laughs> you, um, I guess it's the difference between knowing that, that you've got experts looking after the power station who are trained, and then but in, in your home, you can also have problems with the power too, your, your electricity might go off, but then you call someone up and they help you, you know, it, it's, it's the same sort of, si- <laughs> the same situation in a different angle, a different part of the process. So if I'm if Mr. Average Egyptian, would I have had little statues of Hathor Bess in my home to pray to? Yeah, kind of amulets and small statuettes that you could have of these gods. And as long as you perform the certain rituals and they have the names on them and things like this, the requirements of the rituals that make these objects inhabitable by something divine or these forces that exist, then you, then you can uh, approach them. Similarly, Ancestor worship was also important in the home, so that you might have what they call ancestor busts, kind of these, um, it tends to be kind of the upper body of an individual, and these would be in shrines in the house, or little stelae that might reflect the ancestors as well. And, you know, the dead had a direct line to the gods, and so that you could talk to your ancestors who could inhabit these objects and try and get a message passed along to these divine forces in the hope that they would help you. And so the, this, this connection with the divine is going on at the household level and generally in the day-to-day life because it's, it influences every aspect of your life. And you could go to the temples if you wanted to. I'm not saying people didn't go to the temples because they did try their best to do this too, but they, these were kind of exclusive places. So, and the Egyptians were quite clever about this. And to go back to the, the major temples again, each temple had a sort of walled grounds around it, an enclosure wall. And inside that area, there was the temple itself, which you couldn't go into, but you could go into the grounds around it. And the Egyptians knew that the sanctuary of the god was always at the back of these buildings. And so you could go to, they they would know that in the grounds, if you go to the back of that building, that's the closest point you can get to as an ordinary member of the public to where the god is on the other side of that wall. And so it's not unusual to find kind of carvings on the backs of temples in these places like that. There's a good example that uh, in the grounds at Karnak, the Temple of Amun area there, when you're in, if if you're visiting Luxor, you can go see it. Uh, There's a small temple to Ptah. And, you know, on the back wall, of that temple, on the outside, there is a carving of Ptah uh, and little holes, uh, which would have had, uh, they think, sort of wooden, uh, either a wooden structure or something to support uh, maybe veils or some sort of way of hiding the god's image. But, you know, this is a place that you as an ordinary person could reach. So it's very practical. You know, I can't get to the god, but there's ways that I can deal with this if I need to get Ptah's attention. But on a daily basis, no, you're going to be dealing with the gods that affect your daily life. Because it's, it's always worth remembering that we're dealing all our records that we have from the temples and the written records and everything are from the upper echelons of society, aren't yeah. they? We, we don't have a lot from Mr. Average Egyptian, really. Yes. Uh, and that is, I mean, this is where archaeology comes in very, very handy because the textual evidence is very much one-sided, as you say. And we know, and again, though, we know a lot, we, we could say we know a lot about the elite and the kings, but even then, this evidence is incredibly idealized. Even when we're talking about someone like the king who 
you know, so many texts and so many documents refer to and so many temple inscriptions and so forth. This is all an idealized picture. So it's it's hard to really even get at the reality of the daily life for even some of the people who write a lot, the members of the elite, because we're only seeing a present presentation of their lives, the presentation of the, what they wanted us to see. And that's an idealized version of it. Now, when it comes to the ordinary people, um, yeah, the textual sources, temple inscriptions, things like this aren't going to be really talking much about them because the contexts don't reflect that type of information. But archaeology is incredibly helpful to us here because we can, you know, excavate and try and find out a bit more about the objects and the uh, things that, that were being used by people in their daily lives. But even that is difficult too because people live along the Nile. People want to live along the Nile today and people in the past used to want to live along the Nile too. It's, you live along that green space that inhabitable space beside the river. And so modern towns and cities and villages uh, have grown up on the same locations that the ancient towns and villages all existed as well. It's uh, difficult to find evidence for daily life because the, it's underneath you know, modern life. And of course, that means that you only really find evidence of things that are in the desert areas, and that reflects more the temples and tombs and kind of creates and continues this idea of the Egyptians being obsessed with death. Now, if you're only, all you're really seeing about them is the things that reflect their deaths and divine beliefs, then you, of course you're going to think that they're obsessed with death. But sometimes, luckily, we find evidence for villages and towns too, and that gives us a bit more of an insight into what people were doing on a daily basis. Again, we've only found, you know, these fantastic tombs of the kings or the elites or the nobles. Have we ever found cemeteries for your average working person? They are found. I guess, again, this is something that is only really being emphasized more these days. And so as archaeology has changed over the decades and from its focus in, in the kind of, you know, I guess, the, say, the 19th century, when it was much more about you know, finding lovely statues and great tombs and things like this, things like that might not be recorded so well back then. But these days, of course, people's archaeologists want to learn as much as they can about everybody, you know, not just the elite, not just statues, but even the tiniest bits of evidence can reflect so much about the lives of ordinary people. And so this kind of emphasis on recording and looking at locations that might have been unexplored previously or not explored properly reflects now these new discoveries of, of kind of ordinary Egyptians. And I think the best examples of this are again coming from Amarna. So there's been a lot of focus in recent uh, decades on, on the poorer cemeteries in different places, in parts of Amarna itself, rather than just the elite. And they find bodies of people who died quite young at Armana. It's, it's interesting to, to find that the, the, some of these cemeteries reflect quite difficult lives of these individuals that were in the poorer cemeteries. It looks like some of these individuals, and of course this information is all out there online for you to investigate in more detail, but because they're really interesting to read about, but the skeletons themselves seem to reflect people who've been carrying heavy loads, people who had dietary deficiencies so uh, from a young age, people who didn't live very long, people who had you know, damaged, damages to their bodies, and then died young. And so the, you can, it kind of reflects this image of this kind of city being thrown up very quickly. Armana was a very short-lived city and built very quickly. And these are the people who were seemingly doing that job. And so, but it's only through excavating these poorer cemeteries that we, we can see this. And were the ordinary Egyptians mummified at all, or were they just wrapped and buried? I think the simplest basic burials tend to just involve you being wrapped in a mat, basically, and put in the ground with some very basic 
objects, maybe like a vessel and things like this. I mean, it depends on your resources generally available to you, as you would imagine. You know, I guess if you were had a bit, if you saved up a bit, you might be able to afford some of this. Because again, there was no reason you, if you had the money, you couldn't afford these practices. But for the poorest people, yeah, it's a case of. Uh, there's not much they could really do for you, I suppose, other than the natural preservation from being in the desert. But then if you add a coffin or add a mat around you, it's going to be harder for the body to be preserved in those situations. So there's a, there's a whole range of possibilities that are depending on the absolute poorest individuals all the way through to the rich of what might happen to your body. Fantastic. Thank you. Okay, something slightly different now from one of our last questions, and that is, what do the ancient Egyptians do for fun? <laughs> so it's it's interesting to think about, well, you think about an ancient culture and kind of what they might be doing. It's sometimes hard to get away from kind of our modern ways, I suppose, of thinking about what to, what we do for entertainment. And I think also we're affected by, you know, thinking of Romans and Greeks as well. And so it's, it's quite interesting sometimes to emphasize that the pharaohs weren't building these grand kind of public entertainment areas like some of the other civilizations in the past were doing, and then the same way we have today. So there, there were no official theaters. There were no great arenas for public events like the Romans might have like, might made later on. There were no pubs. There were no taverns, things like this to go out to. And so many of these things that we take for granted, I suppose, as the things that you might do, or at least you think people might do in the ancient world, don't exist in an ancient Egyptian context. But what we do have, you know, they, they, it is quite clear they enjoyed a party. So we have, again, coming from the elite side of things, we have lots of depictions in tombs or banquets with lots of food and drink, fancy expensive wine and lots of beer and things like this. So it's clear that people enjoy these kind of get-togethers for social socializing social events. It's no doubt the same for the poorer people too on a village level. It, people brewed their own beers and things like this. And there were a lot of festivals in the Egyptian calendars, lots of uh, local festivals as well as national festivals. And so there was lots of opportunities to, for communities to get together and celebrate. And that seems to have been a big form of entertainment for people. And some of this was helped along by the state. So the the Valley Festival, the beautiful festival, the Valley at Thebes was an annual event. And as part of that, people at Thebes would go to the tombs of the ancestors uh, and celebrate with the dead. And during these events, the temples, the local temples would provide beer and food and things for the families that were celebrating because getting drunk was not just uh, this kind of experience of having fun, but also it was meant to blur the lines between, I guess, the, the world of the living and the dead in a way you could experience the divine or the dead in a way that you couldn't in, in normal reality. So there's a religious element to it too. Beyond that, I mean, there, there we have games. The Egyptians seem to be quite fond of, of games like Senet, which I think most people have heard of, this kind of board game with about 30 squares in, two, in three lines of 10. And we don't really know the rules and any attempts to reconstruct them are kind of interesting to read about, but there's no specific ancient evidence that says this is the rules of the game. And other games too, like Hounds and Jackals, which we have archaeologically, and a game called Mehen, which was a coiled snake and a board. So this seems to have been quite popular. But also hunting as well seems to have been a popular pastime, especially among the elites. Particularly easy, in fact, if you're in the elite, they seem to have made, made it a bit too easy for themselves. So you see, or you hear about descriptions of kings hunting, and there's sometimes, there's a few images, I think, of elite members of society hunting as well. And you get this, it's a bit that you get these animals herded into these enclosures, and then they seem to just shoot at them with arrows from the safety of outside the enclosure. So it's a bit unfair, not exactly sporting, of the Egyptians to be to be doing that. But uh, yeah, they, they made that a bit easy for themselves. So hunting, uh, yeah, festivals, board games, but also I think uh, storytelling as well uh, would have been a big 
part of this. I mean, we have stories, lots of fragments of some full stories of, from ancient Egypt that were court produced, so produced for the court, the elite, for the king. But there's no reason that these stories couldn't have uh, ended up moving through society in different ways, being copied by scribes and copied and copied and, you know, read out loud to people in the villages and, and things like this, and maybe even with music performed and things like this. So we can imagine that storytelling would have been quite a vibrant part of entertainment in people's daily lives. Fantastic. And that actually brings us very nicely to my last question, which is about your latest book, because I think you could say that that's all about storytelling, isn't it? As you as you travel up and down the Nile. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So my new book is about Egyptian mythology. It's a traveler's guide from Aswan to Alexandria. So as if you are traveling from the south of Egypt to the north, and it takes a different approach to uh, Egyptian mythology than you you'd normally find in many of these books, which provide a sort of overview, thematic overview of different aspects. Mine is taking you location by location, starting in Aswan, in the south, and exploring the different myths and legends and stories that you would have encountered or were important to the people in those locations, and which gods and goddesses were also important as, as a result in those locations. What are the major temples, for example? So as you're traveling along the Nile, we stop at different locations, Aswan, Edfu, you know, we, we have a bit on Thebes and, and so forth. And, you know, when we get to Edfu, for example, we talk about Edfu Temple and the importance of Horus. So not just the types of myths that you find at the Temple of Edfu, which is dedicated to Horus, but also more generally, what did the Egyptians think about Horus and what mythology do we find about him? So I, I've tried to tell the stories of these gods and the myths and legends, but keeping an eye on the location at the same time and trying to pull the myths from those locations that tell us a bit more about them. So it's, it's, it's a slightly different way of going about things, whilst also giving you the general picture as well. It also lets me tell extra stories and things like this and focus on particular gods because there's, these are the gods of these locations. So there's a lot about Thoth when I talk about Hermopolis, a lot about Hathor when I talk about Dendera. But it's a bit different too because each chapter begins with a, a sort of narrative introduction where it's uh, setting the scene for people before going into the myths. There's a bit about uh, the history of the location as well as the mythology. So what happened here generally from a historical point of view, and also a bit about as a tourist, what you might be able to see yourself when visiting these places. So it's uh, hopefully a bit of a handy guide for people who want to learn about these places at home. But also if you're, if you're traveling or you're going to go to Egypt and you want to learn a bit about these locations before you visit a location, it uh, hopefully will be coming in, in handy to you as well. It sounds fantastic, Gary. So that brings us to the end of our chat for today. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. No, it's absolutely great to have taken part. And thank you very much for inviting me to talk about ancient Egypt with you. 